Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Crypto Business Podcast, helping you navigate the frontier of crypto. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Crypto Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web 3.0. Today, I'm going to be joined by Making Markets, and we're going to explore the Constitution DAO. If you've heard the story about how a bunch of people came together, formed a decentralized autonomous organization, and tried to buy the Constitution, well, then you're going to love today's interview. I'm talking to someone who was on the inside. His name is Making Markets, and he's going to help us understand exactly what went down. And I think you're going to find it absolutely fascinating because this my friends, is going to be one of those things that will be in the history books for sure. So you're going to want to pay attention today. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show. We've got an amazing lineup of guests coming your way and you do not want to miss any of it. And now for today's interview with Making Markets. Helping you to simplify your crypto journey. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Macon Markets. He was the lead moderator for the Constitution DAO and is the founder of the People's NFT Project. Macon, welcome to the show. Michael, thank you so much for having me on. Pleasure to be here. So I want to start with a very important question that a lot of my audience is not going to understand, which is that you are operating with a pseudonym. And I know that there's a lot of people that use quote unquote pen names or anonymous names in the world of crypto. But in the business world that I'm operating in, this is kind of an anomaly. So why don't you start by explaining why you're operating under this name, Making Markets, and then we'll get into the rest of the story. I would say that there's no particular reason for me, but you know, it's just a general trend that you see across crypto. And you know, when I think about it, I think it's really a confluence of you know, just internet culture in general and how it's evolved over time, plus general privacy concerns. You know, if you think about the IRC chat rooms, Reddit forums, all that kind of stuff. You see a ton of users, you know, opting for randomized names, not really linking it to any any one particular identity. You know, I think that enables freedom of expression. Obviously, that can be used for both positive and negative purposes. But that's just how you've seen people develop their online branding, their online identity, basically just from the start. So I think that's one powerful driver, of course. And then I think another aspect is, you know, crypto, like right now, it's a fairly diverse ecosystem, but, you know, it basically all started as creating a virtual economy, if you will. So, you know, when we think about finance and traditional finance, I have a checking account. We all have a checking account, but we don't really know each other's net worths necessarily. We don't really know, you know, how much money one might have because we use intermediaries like a JP Morgan Chase, what have you. And that was all 
despite it being directly linked to your personal identity, it was still private from the general public. However, with the blockchain, because everything's on a publicly verifiable uh, ledger on the internet, anyone, if they really wanted to, they could try to connect all the dots, look at all the transaction history, and then link an identity to their finances. You know, I'm sure there are folks out there comfortable with having their publicly knowable identity, their in real life identity being linked to um, their finances at a public level. But, you know, understandably, that really isn't the case for for a lot of people. You know, I, I don't know if I would say majority, but it's certainly a ton of people who who do have pseudonyms or even sometimes are completely anonymous because of these sorts of dynamics. That's a very good point, because if someone knows your wallet address, essentially they can figure out what your net worth is worth. Right. And that's that's scary, right? Because not everybody, you don't want everybody who knows you to know how much you have, quote unquote, in the bank, right? Because that could be used against you, right? So absolutely fascinating. Well, let's get into your story. You were involved with, well, actually, let's start. How'd you get into crypto? And then ultimately, we'll get into how you got into DAOs, which is Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, for those that are listening and Web3 and all that kind of stuff. Why don't you start wherever you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just by way of background, I go by making markets across my uh, socials. I'm based in New York City and, you know, I've worked in uh, traditional financial services for a while. I guess just being around finance for a long time, you know, I've been aware of Bitcoin, as I'm sure everyone has been at this point. I started throwing a little bit of money into it probably as early as 2011, 2012. I forget exactly how long. Let's just say like very, very casually investing in Bitcoin. I certainly didn't go all in by any measure back in 2011. It was probably like $100 or something. But, you know, over time, like I think we've all noticed by this point, you know, adoption has grown. And now the crypto ecosystem is just way more diverse. You mentioned the concept of, of DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. And so we're seeing crypto kind of evolving from purely a financial ecosystem to include governance, you know, really developing the sense of community. And that's where I would say that I kind of transitioned away from just pure casual investing into thinking about, hey, you know, I want to be a part of the community. I want to do something cool like that. I never even knew that crypto could enable these sorts of these mechanisms. And so I would say my first foray into that was Constitution DAO. For folks who, who might not be familiar with Constitution DAO, back in, in November of 2021, there's a crypto investor group that tried to buy the U.S. Constitution. We unfortunately lost, but you know, over the course of a few days, we gained about 20,000 users and uh, raised about $40 million in this attempt. I led the community moderation effort there. You know, it was, it was super eye-opening. You know, it was very unfortunate that the experience itself didn't work out, but it was an amazing learning experience that I'll always be grateful for. You know, ever since that, now I'm focused on uh, launching my own NFT collection. We're called the People's NFT. And in short, we're trying to carry the Constitution DAO spirit forward through this sort of commemorative NFT to kind of reclaim historically and culturally significant assets, whether it's like an artifact, document, what have you, and kind of reclaim it under the shared governance of, of our community. Taking it a step further, what we want to do with this is we want to create the first Web3-enabled uh, museum exhibit. And by that, I mean, you know, we do want to have a physical uh, museum exhibit that, that showcases the artifact or document that we acquire. But the other thing we want to showcase to the general public is, hey, how did we even do it in the first place? It was, it was crypto enabled and, you know, it's something that 
most folks just probably would never even guess is even a possibility. And I think that's particularly important because it kind of bridges people who are not aware about crypto or just aren't sophisticating crypto at all and bridges them into the crypto community, kind of essentially driving adoption. For example, what we saw in Constitution DAO is out of the 18,000 or so contributors, a third of them had never really done anything in crypto before. And by virtue of Constitution DAO having a unique, exciting concept and vision, we onboarded thousands of people. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, that's kind of what we're trying to do with this project as well. Very cool. And we'll come back to what you're doing with the People's NFT uh, project a little bit later in this dialogue. I want to go back to the beginning of November or whenever it was when you got looped into this Constitution DAO project. Kind of take me back and walk me through at what stage you got involved and kind of a little bit of the story from your eyes, please, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, of course, of course. And so I guess, you know, to begin with, so I wasn't one of the first few core folks, if you will. And I think this kind of highlights the beauty of of uh, DAOs because in, you know, in a company, when you think about leadership, it's probably the founders, close core team members, but in a way what DAOs enable is distributed, um, you know, governance, ownership, distributed participation across the community to make fairly important decisions. And so how like Constitution DAO started was, you know, about two weeks before the actual auction on uh, November 18th, 2021, I think it was like a Forbes article or an article in a major publication that just highlighted this upcoming constitution. And then this one guy on Twitter, he just tweeted out, hey, we should create a DAO to buy the constitution. That was pretty much it. And by the way, let's pause for a second just to give people a little context. So my understanding is there was one remaining copy of the original constitution that was owned by an individual investor and all the rest were owned by institutions, right? And this one was coming up for auction on Sotheby's, I think. It was at Christie's or it was Sotheby's, right? It was Sotheby's, yeah. Yeah. And yep. so this guy wrote, somebody wrote a blog post and, and continue with the story. It wasn't even a blog post. It was a very short tweet. I think it was 10 words. Literally, we should create a DAO to buy the Constitution. Honestly, it was just meant in jest at, at the beginning, but that tweet kind of went viral. And a lot of people were like, you know what? Why couldn't we do this? This would be one of the most effective ways, unless you're a billionaire, of course, but one of the most effective ways to potentially buy the Constitution. And from there, it kind of just snowballed. That original team, let's call it 20 to 30 people. I forgot the number, but but once they saw the virality of that tweet, they hopped on a Zoom call, created um, a Discord. And for folks who don't know, Discord is, you can think of it kind of like a, a WhatsApp, but, you know, in the DAO and NFT space, it's pretty much the dominant messaging or communications tool that, that folks use as opposed to, I don't know, WhatsApp or just regular texting, what have you, what have you. But yeah, they created a Discord. I joined fairly early on, I think the first day, but, you know, fairly early on. And, you know, just like an, another general general member of the Discord, again, I wasn't really, I wasn't part of the, that, you know, first core 20 to 30 group of people. What a lot of people in that Discord, they kept saying like, hey, I can't wait to like own the constitution. You know, I can't wait for my investment to go up, things like that. And again, you know, I work in financial services and in my mind, you know, I always have like legality and all this kind of technical stuff you know, just churning in the back of my mind when it comes to these sorts of financial specific concepts. And what I immediately thought was like, hey, you know what, the laws as it relates to crypto and like financial ownership 
they're not really set in stone yet. And I was personally just scared that if we continue down this path, you know, at least, you know, having a paper trail in the discord of people talking about, you know, financial gain, people might think, oh, it's a security. It's like a stock. And so, you know, I kind of took it upon myself to kind of like bat that that sort of discussion down, if you will, because in my mind, the absolute worst outcome would have been was us winning that auction, getting the constitution, and then over some legal technicality, having the regulators just confiscated from us or, or something like that, you know? And so just me and my plate safe attitude, if you will, that led to me focusing on that kind of content when I was contributing in the discord. And, you know, I guess folks uh, at the administrative level took notice and then quote unquote promoted me to, to the moderating team. And that's, that's how it all started, really. When you got promoted to the moderating team, what exactly was your responsibility? And I would love for you to kind of share a little bit of the story, because if you were there on day one, my guess is it was just a few hundred people in there on day one, right? Or did it just blow up overnight? It blew up very quickly. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the first like 10, 15 to 24 hours, or maybe even 36 or 48 hours or so, yeah, certainly a smaller group of people. Um, in the hundreds or maybe even a thousand or two thousand, the Discord server it blew up to I think about twenty five thousand at its peak. And so yeah, I was there fairly early on. And you know, what I was responsible for was was just making sure that all the channels and all the communications were kind of in line with our values. Obviously, I, I talked about like the securities regulatory thing. So that was definitely a big aspect as well as a protective measure. But yeah, I mean, just basically active moderation, making sure folks are aligned with our mission and values. And in many ways, also kind of a PR exercise, if you will. For people that aren't super active inside of Discord's, uh, Discord servers, they may not understand all the different kind of discussion channels and stuff that could be happening inside of there. What kind of channels were inside of the Constitution DAO and how were they using those different channels, if you will? I don't even know if you can call it a channel. What do you, what do you call those little, are they called channels or what do they call them? Yeah, yeah, they are called channels. As you might imagine, again, kind of like along the lines of like the whole regulatory thing, you know, for us as what some could conceivably say, at least at the early stages, was just like kind of a large group text, you know, for that to morph into an organization that an institution like Sotheby's would be willing to even consider participating in a fairly high profile auction. Remember the floor price or the minimum price rather was $20 million. So this is a fairly high stakes auction, right? So for us to evolve from essentially a group chat to an actual organization, an entity, an institution to interface with, you know, an old guard institution. Sotheby's, you know, historically, like basically never uh, had interacted with DAOs or anyone in the crypto community, or it was a very minimal interaction. So doing all that in 10 days, one obviously was, difficult, but as you might imagine, that's, you know, a lot of the channels were very specific work streams. Like there's a legal channel, finance channel, marketing, uh, basically all the kind of functional areas that you might see, frankly, in a, in a corporate entity. That's exactly what we had to do as well, just to be able to, to be that, you know, fully functioning institutional type entity that Sotheby's would even interface with um, in the first place. A lot of people right now are probably wondering, how did the finance side of this all work? Because presumably you said there was a finance channel and a legal channel and a marketing channel. I'm assuming there must have been a donation channel or I don't know how they did it exactly. Can you talk a little bit about that side of it? I would say that I'm using the word finance like 
pretty loosely here because you're right, it was donation based. So as some folks may or may not be aware, you know, when you think about like a typical crypto coin or an NFT that has like a set number of units, people sell off those units and then get money that way. Whereas here with Constitution DAO, it was pure donations. We weren't selling an NFT, nothing like that. It was just, hey, if you're interested, here's a basically a big pool of money, kind of a crypto enabled Kickstarter in a way, or GoFundMe. And then there you go, contribute. And let's hope that one, we were able to raise $20 million, but you know, given it's an auction, hopefully more than that as well to be competitive. But yeah, it was donation based. I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about how it worked. Was it Bitcoin only? Was it Ethereum only? Was there like a couple of wallet addresses that people were just by faith contributing money to? I mean, can you speak a little bit about what you saw from your perspective? It was uh, Ethereum based only. So you couldn't contribute like Bitcoin as a currency into the pot. I'm not a software engineer. So, you know, as it relates to, you know, why Ethereum over Bitcoin, just generally speaking, not even in the context of this, but, you know, you see NFTs and for the most part, they're Ethereum based. You don't see Bitcoin NFTs. So I know it's engineering related, but this, the exact minutia and specifics, I'm not, I'm not sure of, but essentially it's that logic that, that resulted in us picking Ethereum as the base cryptocurrency to, to build out the pool of funds. And uh, we use an established service. It's called Juicebox. Uh, the website's juicebox.money. You know, there it's a fairly diversified service, but in many ways, you can think of it as an escrow that takes in ETH-based, Ethereum-based donations. Ah. One of the things that we had to solve for was to the extent we didn't win the auction, obviously folks needed a way to redeem their money, right? You know, we not just gonna like keep <laughs> keep their money, this all donation-based. So the escrow concept was also, you know, particularly important for the uh, organization. And so, you know, Juicebox, they're, you know, fairly well known in the space and and they have that sort of uh, functionality. So that's, uh, that's who we used. Now, I belong to a number of different Discord servers related to the whole Web3 world. And these can get completely nuts. Like, you know, I'm in the vFriends one and it can just be so crazy. You can't even keep up with it. Right. So Tell us a little bit about what it was like from your end moderating what probably felt like a river of comments, right? Like what the heck did, what happened a little bit there? And, and, you know, and how did you even like manage the whole thing? You know, don't get me wrong. You're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know how big the VFriend server is, but it's definitely in the twenties of thousands. I think it's, it's at least 20,000 might even be more. I don't even know. I'll look it up while we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's certainly tough at that level. You know, you, you definitely need a full-fledged team. I think in total, I forget the exact numbers, but, you know, more than five moderators, between five and 10 moderators, I think closer, definitely closer to 10. So we had a team because, you know, we had to cover all time zones too. It's a blockchain. Anyone, anywhere with an internet connection can contribute. And we saw China, a couple other countries, I forget which one, I think Mexico. Were, was it all English though, or were they speaking in different languages also? Well, so yeah, I mean, once the server got big enough, yeah, we had to create a specific like Chinese language speaking, the Spanish speaking channels and so on. Um, and that's a pretty common thing for some of the more scaled, uh, scaled communities, because it's just not, it's kind of untenable to just have an English only speaking channel and call it a day, you know, to really maximize community participation. But yeah, I mean, you know, one of the big things was obviously having a fairly active uh, moderating staff across all uh, time zones. You know, one of the bigger challenges, like kind of kind of more from a PR perspective was, you know, we always had to be aligned, you know, and given the decentralized nature of, um, you know, each individual work stream, 
trying to be aligned on literally everything in real time across work streams, whether it's legal, marketing, you know, what have you, what have you. That was certainly uh, difficult. I mean, we managed to make it work, but, you know, it did require certainly a super, super hands-on effort. In Discord, that's that's a text-based one, right? So obviously I did a lot of typing, but, you know, there are certain points in time, um, especially like the last few days leading up to the auction where we would have like a two to three quote unquote town hall type chats where we would just sit um, in a voice channel and for hours at a time and then people would raise their hand and then we'd bring them up to the stage and they would just ask us questions and and uh you know we just hash it out basically in real time and answer their questions a lot of it was uh along those lines and yeah i think the pr kind of situation probably that's kind of how i would define it it's fascinating that you know i don't know if you remember when clubhouse got really popular almost exactly a year ago then Discord came out with their social audio. I don't remember exactly what they call it, but I would imagine that came in really handy for these town hall kind of meetings, right? Or, or oh, 100%. you guys were actually using native features inside of Discord. You weren't like streaming like Zoom in there or anything like that, right? Right. I mean, that actually, that's a great way to put it. I mean, it's literally just like a clubhouse type channel within the Discord app itself. So with all the moderators and stuff, was there like the group of 20, if you will, that was communicating updates to you and you would have to update the moderators on like stance and positions on certain kind of things? Or were you guys making it up on the fly as you were going? Kind of a combination. I mean, again, because like it's text-based, so like, you know, that kind of flattens the hierarchy in a way. So like we just had like one channel with everyone in it. It's not like one person would communicate something to another administrative person. That second person communicates something to me. I communicate to the rest of the team. Nothing like that. You know, people would just like drop in whatever, you know, whatever relevant information into that mod slash admin chat. And then, you know, we would disseminate accordingly. That being said, to your point, I mean, again, everything was happening in parallel in real time at, on a very tight time frame, right? Like it, was, it took basically a week, seven to 10 days all in. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, in many instances, you know, we kind of had to answer some questions from the community just based on, you know, our, our instinct in a way and like our experience to date, you know, with uh, with Constitution DAO, whatever other projects. I mean, fortunately, for the most part, the messaging, you know, was was accurate and there were no real missteps or anything like that. But it, yeah, admittedly, sometimes we as moderators, just to kind of answer some questions in real time, yeah, we relied on instinct as well. When we were preparing to do this interview, you told me that there was a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt that you had to work with when you were managing this community. I would love you to share a little bit of examples of that and kind of how you squash that or how you handle that, because there's going to be plenty of people listening to this downstream who are going to grow their own discord communities that might get quite large and have some of these very same challenges that you faced. Yeah. So just for folks listening in, so fear, uncertainty, doubt, you know, that's uh, kind of crypto lingo and we, we uh, shorthand it and call it FUD. You know, Mike, I don't know, like, I don't know that I would say that there's a lot of FUD, generally speaking, but, you know, there are a couple instances certainly that did that did stand out. I mean, I guess, you know, before going into specifics, you know, for folks um, on the line here, FUD can very quickly snowball. All it takes is one person to, like, ask a random question or just, like, even type out literally just the word scam in a Discord chat. And then basically everyone else just who sees that, they start freaking out. And, you know, that could quickly, quickly devolve and essentially kill a project in minutes, hours, who knows? And so it's a very, you know, in terms of community management or just 
general project management, at least in the crypto space, but I'm sure more broadly applicable, you know, the concept of FUD and it rapidly snowballing, you know, is really top of mind. The one instance that really, really stood out to me was uh, it was an auction, right? The minimum price for the constitution was $20 million. You know, if you take a step back, think about it, you know, who are competitors going to be? Probably folks that, you know, that eat uh, $20 million for breakfast every day, right? Billionaires. That's probably who would be interested in this sort of thing in the first place. But, you know, on our website, we did have a live tracker of how the status of our donations, how much we had collected, so on and so forth. You know, some folks obviously noticed that we hit the $20 million mark. We were still taking in donations. And people seemed to get a, a decent number of people started getting confused. They didn't really understand why we were taking in more than $20 million when the Sotheby's listed minimum price was $20 million. And it kind of dawned on me like, dang, these guys just don't know what an auction is. I, I'm not really sure what's going on, but that, that's got to be it because $20 million is the absolute minimum. We, we need far more than that to be competitive, right? And then it wasn't too long thereafter where some people did start now, I don't think they like literally use the word scam, but they're like, hey, you know, th there's some funny business going on. Like, why are you guys continuously raising money? And so, again, to the concept earlier of it rapidly snowballing, even if it's completely unfounded or incorrect or what have you. It happened also at 3 a.m. Eastern time, too. And I'm on the East Coast. So, you know, I just happened to be awake and, and saw that. But, you know, once that started snowballing, you know, we did need like basically an all hands effort, you know, some of the admins had to, you know, step away from, you know, whatever, whatever work stream they're focusing on to like, just start, you know, contributing to, to give, to kind of manage the general server. Because again, 20,000 people, once the first two or three people say something, then that could mean like a hundred people in a matter of seconds are going to start getting scared too. It was, it was pretty short lived. It was a pretty crappy two or three hours or so, but fortunately it was short lived. Did you just have to have like a canned response that you guys were responding to everybody with, or how did you guys handle that? Yeah, we kept copy pasting. Like <laughs> it was basically just a definition of what an auction is. It's like, and, and also the point of like who our competitors are like, you know, it's going to be billionaires. It's not going to be some guy who happens to have $20 million in total and then going it all there. Like, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, to me, at least, that feels like that should have been pretty straightforward or whatever. But again, when you're dealing with thousands upon thousands of people, one of the things I kind of learned was you can't make those assumptions. Sometimes people, you know, may not really understand what's going on, even if they're super excited and, and have contributed to a project with time and or money. But the messaging at a population level, if you will, you know, it's certainly a skill, you know, for smaller DAOs. Um, of a few hundred or a thousand members or so, you know, it's kind of easy to kind of get a feel for the community have and essentially have community that's fairly like-minded. But, you know, when you scale up, like you said, like with WeFriends, for example, certainly with Constitution Dow being in the 25,000 member range, it's not so much a small tight-knit community where everyone's on the same page and it's easy to manage that and manage those sorts of expectations. Now you're essentially dealing with the population from the brightest of the bright to the less bright, you know? And so just being able to effectively communicate everything that you need to communicate, but also doing it in a very easily understandable, clear and concise manner. Yeah, again, I th it's a very specific skill. And I, I never even thought about that conceptually um, until this experience. For my social friends who are listening, what I've experienced with Discord, which is kind of cool, is you can have announcement only channels, right? And 
I would imagine that really came in handy so that there could be like a formal announcement that everybody would see, because I would imagine that channel where you had your general chat or whatever going on was out of control. Did you guys eventually use that channel to kind of like clarify this so that anybody who came in, because my guess is most people read, but don't comment. Right. And that's a great way to get the message out there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I would say that the announcement channel, like just not just constitution now, but like generally speaking for projects across the board, you know, you kind of stick with like what really needs to be announcement as opposed to, you know, what you could probably just post in the general chat. But yeah, to your point, just given the scale, yeah, a lot of the important messaging, logistical type items, status updates, those were certainly broadcast over the announcement channel. Any other tips that you have for managing a really rapidly growing discord community? Like, did you guys respond to every single person? Obviously, you can speak from your experience with your new Discord community that you're managing over um, also at the People's NFT. Any thoughts on tips on managing communities? A lot of it's just messaging and having people online and, you know, pretty and rapid response type stuff. It's hard finding good community managers or moderators, whatever you want to call them. It's certainly hard. I mean, in many ways, we... Constitution DAO as an entity was fairly lucky to have a pretty competent team that also happened to be, you know, at least happened to happen to have at least a few people online at, at every hour of the day. If that had not been the case, then of course some of the people that were focusing on like writing up the legal papers, for example, they would have been pulled away from that core work stream to be able to manage this, you know, the or rather the community moderation aspect. Good point. Apart from the stuff we've already discussed, like I guess. One of the things that I don't know if it's unique to Discord, but is very, very helpful, especially for scaled communities, is the concept of a slow mode. And so what you can do is you can enable like a 10 second, one hour, whatever X period of time slow mode. So once someone posts, they can't post again until that cool down period, if you will, that duration. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like, as you can imagine, you know, without slow mode, it is a community of meaningful scale it could literally be a hundred posts per second, which is, that's not manageable at all. You could have a thousand moderators, all of whom are top tier. That's just not manageable. Right. And so, yeah, for the scale of communities, you know, probably a two, one minute, two minute slow mode, something like that. You don't want to overdo it because slow modes admittedly are kind of annoying when you're, when you're trying to have a conversation and, and that kind of stuff and just how we text, you know, rapid fire sometimes. So you kind of want to use it smartly and sparingly to the extent possible. Apart from just a general PR management type stuff, I would say that that capability that Discord has is, was, is super key. Talk to me about what it was like in the community while the auction was going on, and then also what happened in the community after the auction was over. During the auction, like you kind of see this across crypto, especially um, with NFTs. You know, you see a lot of activity when people are anticipating something. And so, you know, just a couple hours leading up to the auction, the engagement in the Discord was just off the charts, off the charts, which is great. Everyone's hyped up, you know, they, you know, how many people like tune into like live Sotheby's streaming, right? Well, this night, tens of thousands of people did. Engagement was off the charts. One thing I didn't really consider because I haven't really participated in auctions before is the importance of keeping, you know, your auctioneer private. You don't want that information getting out there. So during the auction. Oh, you mean the person representing the DAO? Is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 So the auctioneer is just like, it's a representative. It's not anyone from the DAO. They, they blind their, like the actual per potential purchasers um, identity using that, you know, that middle layer. 
And so what I noticed is that people assumed this woman named Brooke Lampley, I believe. I know she's a fairly senior person at Sotheby's as well. And then it was her as one auctioneer. And then this guy, David, who was the other auctioneer. We don't know who's representing whom. You know, we, we do know it's us and just one other, you know, blinded bidder. And interestingly enough, basically every single person assumed it was Brooke. I'm not really sure why. I really don't. And actually during the auction, so I went to an in real life viewing party. I'm in New York, right? So a ton of people here. And so we had a hundred people show up to the in real life event. Also the same thing. Everyone in real life also thought it was Brooke. And, you know, we're watching it live, like as the seconds go by. So no one was on the discord. So, you know, when you think about it, it's two separate communities, both of which happen to think it was Brooke. I'm, I'm not sure what that, why they happen to be the case, but um, yeah, obviously it turned out that, you know, David was our auctioneer, um, unfortunately did not win. And then again, both in, in real life and on discord, what you noticed was, I mean, probably just kind of like sadness, you know, engagement dropped off, people got off their phone, went home if they're viewing party what have you. And, you know, just generally speaking, I think, you know, when, when there are these sorts of pivotal moments in any DAO's life cycle, for example, like a DAO that's focused on releasing an NFT, for example, at the time of the mint, basically when they sell the NFT publicly to whomever wants to contribute, you know, if that mint doesn't go well, and like only 10 people minted out of a series of 10,000, then, you know, it's, it's a, you you end up seeing a pretty meaningful uh, drop off in engagement, and that and many times that's the same as well. So yeah, in the immediate aftermath, that certainly held true for Constitution DAO as well. Uh, from your recollection, what happened after the auction was over? With just give us the quick skinny. Did the Constitution DAO disband or give everybody their money back, or just what's the rest of the story for those that are curious? Yeah, we did essentially uh, ultimately disband. It took. I forget the exact time frame, but like, you know, we announced that we were going to sunset the project and the entity known as Constitution DAO within a week and a half, two weeks maybe after the auction. And then now the Discord server, you know, no one can, like, it's basically gone. Like, it still exists if you're already in it, like, it'll still show up in your app. But, um, you know, everything, it's basically completely muted. And you can't, you can't join it anymore. But yeah, I mean, the, the project, I mean, it served, it served its purpose and unfortunately didn't work out quite the way that anyone would have hoped. And obviously, because we didn't win, we opened up the refund mechanism in, in short order so people could get, could get refunded, kind of pivoting towards another purpose, you know, because if you're, if you think about it purely from a, a marketing context, it would be awesome to leverage a discord of 25,000 or so barely engaged members and, you know, leverage that momentum to pivot away and, and try to do something with it. But, you know, just given the complexities of having to refund money, pretty meaningful scale, again, about 18,000 contributors or so, if I recall. And then, you know, obviously whatever legal technicalities, because we had to create like an actual like LLC or, or whatever legal entity to interface with Sotheby's. So kind of unwinding that and then, you know, starting from the ground up with a new legal entity and defining a new mission and purpose. You know, I think the the Constitution DAO team, as it was at the time, just decided, you know, what that's we're basically going to have to start completely from the ground up anyway. So, you know, we're just going to do what we want to do as individuals. Because again, 30-ish people or so 
versus versus just keeping the Discord around and kind of letting it flail about as we try to figure out things going forward. And honestly, I mean, that's kind of like why I created a Discord for uh, the People's NFT project. You know, once we found out that the, that the ultimate decision was to sunset it, you know, obviously I, like, you know, basically everyone else, you know, I, I felt like that was unfortunate and that, you know, we certainly shouldn't let the Constitution DAO momentum wane. And so, yeah, I created the People's NFT server first. Server came first before I even knew what, you know, what the project was going to do. But yeah, we, we leveraged that momentum and now we're on the path to uh, release an NFT collection, um, ideally towards the end of February. So about a month out from, from the time we're recording this. I want to ask you about that. How did you get the word out? Was there like a hashtag on Twitter you were using? Were you allowed to, to post it in Discord? Like, how did you get the word out? Hey, I'm doing something over here for anybody who wants to join me. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I just levered, uh, leveraged the Constitution DAO Discord pretty heavily for that. Because again, you know, being a moderator, I, I was in a very public facing role. And so if I post, hey, guys, come join this new server, there's a lot more credibility behind that as opposed to some random user in the server posting a, a, an invite link, you know? And so um, I just, you know, I, I, I recognize that could be a very, know, very important way to create the momentum for a, an offshoot project, if you will. And so that was probably my main, uh, my main marketing method to onboard people to the project. To your point, you know, we do have a Twitter as well, people's underscore NFT. And, you know, we are leveraging all sorts of marketing channels um, that we possibly can to, you know, keep the engagement and momentum going and really get the word out so we can track to a successful mint. So we're recording this uh, near the end of January of 2022. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing with this NFT project? Just kind of give us the high level of how many tokens are you going to mint? And, you know, by the time this comes out, it may have already happened, but kind of give us the plan if you could. Yeah, sure. So I guess just a caveat, everything for the listeners here. So apart from like our mission statement and values and stuff, everything else is basically subject to change because one of the key themes that you may have noticed in my experience with Constitution DAO, at least, is the importance of having an ironclad legal governance, financial structure, all that sort of, I don't want to say boring, but all the kind of nitty gritty stuff to have a fully functioning entity that obviously, hopefully succeeds in the crypto world, but is also enabled to be able to interface with non-crypto institutions. You know, so Mike, as it relates to, you know, the final number of units and, you know, yeah. It's subject to change, obviously. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Because we're actively ironing out all the details, making sure. We're, Do you have a launch date? We have a tentative launch date. We have not publicly announced it yet, but you know, as of now, yeah, you know, towards the end of February. Got it. Yeah, and this show is going to be dropping on March the fourth. Just tell people at a macro level, like, what is it that? Just give them a high level of like, regardless of how many units you're going to be doing or whatever. But what what is the NFT? functionality, if you will, and what are your basic plans, just so people understand again, and if it may be too late for people to get in on this, on the, the minting process, but they might be able to go to OpenSea and possibly participate in this. So maybe you could just kind of like knowing full well that it's all in motion, like what are the things you can talk about? At a high level, essentially what we're trying to do here is, you know, we want to commemorate and carry forward basically the Constitution DAO spirit. And what I mean by that is we want to seek out historically and culturally significant artifacts and then uh, acquire them and then, you know, basically create a Web3 enabled museum exhibit 
we obviously want to showcase those artifacts and also kind of onboard people into crypto by also showcasing how we even acquired those artifacts in the first place. And so at a very high level, that's you know kind of uh, how we see the project going. And so as it relates to the NFT Mint specifically, what the NFT Mint would enable any potential contributor to do is um, to have a governance and and say basically in the project's future direction. Because acquiring the artifact, I mean, of course, that's you know that's a momentous, very pivotal time in the project's history. But then, what do you do with it after you acquire it? You know, you got got to figure out where to store it. One of the key ideas, like I mentioned, is a museum exhibit. And you know, based on Constitution DAO, we found that you know a lot of uh, museums out there they are you know they are willing to kind of play ball. They too are institutionally starting to get interested in uh, crypto. So, um, in many ways creating a hybrid crypto slash traditional exhibit is something really of interest uh, to these museums. And so something is, you know, as simple as which museum do we pick? You know, how do we want to structure the exhibit? You know, one of the ideas is kind of creating a, an app or essentially a digital museum so that, you know, you don't have to be in New York City to visit the MoMA to see the artifact. You know, you can just download the app from your phone and, and get functionally the similar experience that way. And so at the end of the day, a lot of it is community led. And that's what the NFT affords you, the, the ability to participate in that governance and essentially getting a vote to determine all future or most future aspects of, uh, of the project. I can imagine that people can buy as many NFTs as they want, or is there a limit to how many NFTs you can purchase per person on the, on the initial mint? There is going to be a cap per the wallet. You know, one of the key risks for having just basically allowing people to mint an unlimited number of NFTs is very conceivably someone could, let's say that the collection is 5,000, 5,000 NFTs. Someone could conceivably mint 3,000 of them and then essentially have majority stake, a dictatorial relationship with the project. And that's something, you know, we certainly, we certainly want to avoid. Here's Lisa, so, you know, in real life, I, I work in traditional finance, right? And so like when you look at IPOs, what you see is they try to fill up, like they only want to have a few major investors or whatever. It's the exact opposite in DAOs, NFT, and crypto. You want to have as wide as distributed of a contributor base as you possibly can to be able to, you know, and really distribute voting that way. Um, so I just think that's, that's you know, fairly unique. I'm, I'm not sure... You know, DAOs are so early on, like, I don't know if that kind of dynamic is going to change and perhaps evolve something more like what you see in the IPO markets. But, you know, I just thought that that was kind of something interesting. And so also there's another reason why you typically see, um, you know, limitations or caps, if you will, on the number of NFTs any one single wallet can uh, mint. Macon, why don't you tell people where they can go if there's a website you want to send them to to learn more about the project and all the great stuff you've got going on? And also tell them where they can find you on Twitter too. The project website is peoplesnft.io. We also have a Twitter, which is peoples underscore NFT. The Discord link is discord.gg slash peoplesnft. And then for my personal social, it's just making markets across social media. I pretty much, you know, at least as it relates to crypto, pretty much stick with uh, Twitter and Discord for the most part. But that's how you can find me. Yeah. And Macon is M-A-K-I-N and then markets, just like it sounds. Macon, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the story of what it was like to be part of the Constitution DAO and also share 
you know, your vision of what you're trying to do with the people's NFT. It's been a fascinating story. Thank you again for coming. No, thank you, Michael. Really appreciate the opportunity here. I mean, you know, this podcast, it's early days, but, you know, from the podcast that have been released to date, you know, it's, it's super exciting. This, I, I look forward to, to keeping up with this because, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, despite myself having whatever experience in, you know, across crypto assets and crypto worlds, if you will, coins, NFTs, DAOs, we're still early days here. You know, it's, there's no set structure as to how things do work or should work, right? And so everyone, even now, still has a chance to kind of contribute and kind of have have some sort of impact on on the space. And so I think that's really special and I look forward to keeping up. Thank you again. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. If you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash C8, the letter C and the number eight. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. Also, let your friends know about this show. I am at Stelzner on Instagram. This brings us to the end of another crypto business podcast episode. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day. And may Web3 continue to change your world. The information provided in the Crypto Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. The Crypto Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.